Welcome to the Palia Podcast. I'm Turi Munte. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarization. Everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, I'll talk to experts from across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. Today we're thrilled to be talking to Julian Bagini. Julian's a philosopher, journalist, and the author of over 20 books of philosophy written for a general audience, including his latest, The Godless Gospels. We're here to talk with him about his penultimate book, How the World Thinks, A Global History of Philosophy. It's an exploration of the very different philosophical traditions outside of the West, from China and Japan through India, Islam, as well as the oral traditions in Africa and elsewhere. I adored it by showing us how deeply our way of looking at the world is embedded in our own place and time. Nothing reminds us quite so much as to question our received wisdom as seeing how deeply our own understanding of the world is tied to where we're born, the cultures of our parents, the, the world around us. So, Julian, thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. Well, thank you, Tui. Thank you for inviting me. Um, let's start with this idea, which was once deeply uncontroversial and now is deeply contested, that human beings think and act differently around the world, that actually ideas do have an impact on the way we behave and that they have an impact on history that the ideas spread around the world have an impact on the society and politics that then breed, uh, breed up around them. So can you help us understand, wh- one, what this idea is, and two, give us a little bit of the history around it? <laughs> well, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I think there are different ways of understanding it. It's, my, my view is not a straightforward sort of top-down causal one, that philosophers develop theories, and these theories are taken up by people, and you know that then changes the culture although sometimes that happens there are some ideas which have passed their way into general culture in that top-down way but i think what's much more common and much more interesting is that of course the philosophies of a culture are in a kind of two-way dialogue with the culture they are in a part a product of the cultures they come from but they're also then feeding back and informing reinforcing or modifying the cultures and i think that's should be uncontroversial really because it's, it's a very sort of holistic view it's not saying that there's this sort of like mysterious arrow of causation from ideas to action or something it's saying that within a particular culture ways of thinking are very deep rooted and therefore they find their expression both in everyday practices but also in high philosophy and that those things are often connected they're not always exactly the same but they're deeply connected. If I give an example of how they're not all exactly the same, let's take the idea of karma, which is like ubiquitous in in most Indian philosophies. So the idea of karma is found in all those traditions. It's also something which people believe in on a day-to-day basis. I mean, it's very common in India to believe that things occur because of some kind of karmic payback. But of course, the way in which karma is theorized uh, philosophically is diverse and different and often quite complex. It's not exactly the same as often the sort of everyday person on the street way of thinking. But there is obviously a strong, strong similarity. And the absence of that way of thinking in other cultures means that makes those other cultures importantly different. 
there's obviously some politics wrapped up in this because what it suggests is that one can say there is an Indian way of thinking or there is a Japanese approach to the world or a Chinese way of seeing uh, the cosmos. And that is politically unfashionable now. Well, it is politically unfashionable, although it's, I find that it's a bit strange in a way. On the one hand, people are very keen to promote diversity. And in promoting diversity, often they are very keen on, on celebrating the fact that there are these different ways of thinking around the world. But at the same time, there's also, a, a, I think, a quite correct unwillingness to overgeneralize and essentialize. And I think that is an important thing to do. If I make any general statements about Indian philosophy or Chinese philosophy or Japanese philosophy, it's got to be understood that I'm not saying all Japanese people and philosophers have thought in exactly the same way. Generalizations of this kind are about what has tended to be prominent and what tends to be in the foreground, okay? In the same kind of way, a simple example, a generalization is that men are taller than women. We know that doesn't mean that every given man is taller than any given woman, That's simply not true. But we know it's a kind of a statement about averages. In the same kind of way, if we say there's a way in which the Japanese think, we're saying there is a way of thinking which is prevalent in Japan and has been. Not only do we have to be aware though that of course it never applies to everyone in any given place at time, you also have to accept the fact that things do change over time as well. And so, you know, continuity, I think the continuities are nonetheless extraordinary. In China, for example, the Confucian way of thinking, which goes back millennia, is still very strong today. It survived violent suppression during the Mao era, where they tried to essentially eradicate all traces of Confucianism. It didn't work. It was still there. So although, again, things do adapt and change over time, the, the deeper continuities are sometimes remarkably striking. That's a very clear way of articulating the difference and allowing for this kind of inquiry. Um, you divide How the World Thinks Your Book into four distinct sections, denoting four specific ways in which our fundamental metaphysics, I think is the word that you would use, differ from each other. Can you, can you explain what you mean by the metaphysics part? And then, and then talk us through those four different ways in which we engage with the world differently. Well, the fundamental metaphysics, if you like, is in, in any kind of way of thinking, there's a fundamental understanding about how the world is, you know, what, what kind of things make up the world. So, for instance, in, uh, in the Indian traditions, the majority of philosophical schools, and again, the majority of people, have believed that there is some kind of ultimate reality which has a, a unity and a simplicity of which apparent individuals are in reality merely parts thereof and that it's our destiny ultimately to return to oneness with that in the west in particularly the, the christian world a combination of christianity and plato you needed both of them um, gave us this dualistic worldview in which for centuries people assumed there was both a material realm and a physical realm and again that's sort of almost taken for granted China, on the other hand, again, is rather naturalistic tradition. It kind of uh, has taken, taken for granted the fact that the fundamental nature of the universe is something which is governed by a kind of a natural order of things. It can be misleading because one of the phrases used for this is the, the way of heaven. And because that's the translation that's used and because of what we think of as heaven, we assume that to mean there's some kind of a otherworldly order but it isn't actually i think i think most people would say that the way of heaven in china is more like the order of nature the fundamental order so there are kind of 
yeah, very, very fundamental ways of understanding how the world is constituted, how it works, how principles of cause and effect work. Uh, and then that changes the whole, the whole view of, of how you see everything else. So that's how you describe and how we'll use over the course of this podcast, the idea of our metaphysics, which is sort of the, the macro landscape or no the, i suppose the macro perspective that we bring to everything that we engage with yeah i think the best way, i mean if we take metaphysics to mean here that the, the fundamental conception of the nature of reality <laughs> okay um which is often obviously in in everyday life is often implicit rather than explicit most people can't particularly articulate what their metaphysics is and they wouldn't even know what the word metaphysics means but they will have certain assumptions for example about people having an immaterial soul as well as a material body whatever it might be Gotcha. And that's very exciting to start to probe because, because anything which carries in it an implicit perspective, which is not understood, which is not, has not been verbalized, has not been rendered conscious, is, uh, has just such a, such a tremendous impact on the way that we think about the world. And we're not in a position to argue against ourselves, which is why I think I'm so interested in it. But can I ask you back to the book for key differences in the way in which we um, we engage one how the world knows two how the world is three who we are in the world and four how we live so the idea of the better life i'm flagging them for you to really to, 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 to open them up for us those four yeah. different ideas well the second is is what we've already talked about the fundamental metaphysics how the world is but in a way, I mean, the order I did it in was starting with how the world knows. And I think this is, I think, very, very interesting. We believe certain things uh, and certain things we believe with a certainty that we call it knowledge. Whether or not we believe it's beyond all doubt or not, there's kind of knowledge. It's more than just opinion. And in different places and at different times, people have a very different idea of what is a legitimate way of gaining such knowledge. Now, in the West, in the contemporary West, I think, sort of post-Enlightenment West, and but this has its roots going further back the 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 roots to knowledge are essentially a combination of reasoned experience so it's the, the scientific investigation of the world and also the application of essentially logical reasoning uh, to, to to data and these are the only real things which in the sort of secular world are considered to be legitimate sources of knowledge now of course in other places and other times, different things count too. So for instance, in India, there's quite a historical emphasis on the idea of insight, insight into reality, which one doesn't necessarily gain from just you know, studying things scientifically or, or thinking well. You, you gain it by developing a certain sensitivity, a kind of, it's a kind of spiritual practices help with this. You know? So practices like meditation, yoga, and so forth are intended to help us to be able to gain that insight and one corollary of that is that if insight is indeed a source of knowledge then and it is also the case that certain people are more skilled at having this insight than others then another legitimate source of knowledge is the testimony of relevant persons and so what you find in the indian tradition which seems very very alien to the contemporary western one is that people will take something to be true on the basis of the testimony of someone who is believed to have special insight. 
And that almost sounds, you know, it's heretical <laughs> from a university. Imagine a, a British university right. where someone was to say, you know, Professor X, you know, has got his business because he's, he's developed a very keen insight and we, we trust the insight he has. And it would be a, would be a he as, or in these traditions too as well, to be historically. <laughs> always. But it, yes, that is unfortunately the case. Um, there are other things. So again, for example, there are lots of cultures where a very important source of knowledge is what you might call tradition. It's the wisdom of the ages and the mere fact that something has been held to be the case, particularly when it comes to morals and politics throughout the centuries by the great sages is itself a reason to believe things to have a certain uh, weight, to have a certain kind of truth. So, I think you, know, you can see how, once you start unpicking this, or scripture as well, is scripture a legitimate source of knowledge? What's quite interesting is in the Indian tradition, I think there's more of a systematic kind of exploration of this. I mean, when people talk about the orthodox and the heterodox schools of Indian philosophy, and you don't have to know in detail what they are, but you know, there's a traditional way of dividing the schools of, of, of philosophy in India, which I think is perhaps a little bit simplistic, but it's better than perhaps nothing. Um, one of the ways in which you standardly distinguish them is the different views they take on what the legitimate sources of knowledge are. So the only uh, school of philosophy in, in the Indian tradition, major school of philosophy, which is entirely materialist, which is the Charvaka school, uh, is, is distinguished by the fact that it only allows essentially, I think, experience, I don't know, I think reason comes into it as well, as legitimate sources of knowledge. Um, everything else allows for other things. That's fascinating. But I think one of the things which, it, which comes across so clearly is that rather than disparaging these peculiar ways of ascertaining truth or ways of gaining knowledge, such as insight or tradition, you point out that actually there's something very perhaps almost objective rational about trusting in something called insight. It may be that actually our <laughs> disparaging of insight sort of it doesn't particularly work. Yeah, I think that's something that's got to be more careful than that. It's interesting that Aristotle, uh, Aristotle did say something very striking to the effect of that. One should pay careful attention to the uh, beliefs of people with great experience because it has a kind of authority which other things lack. Uh, so Aristotle did, did recognise that. I think what's interesting is if we're going to sort of learn from this, I, I don't go for the shoulder shrugging, everything everywhere is equally legitimate, everyone's got everything equally right. I don't think that makes sense. But there are always things to be learned. I think when it comes to like insight, we do have to ask ourselves, well, in what areas do we think perhaps that is legitimate? And I think, for example, if you take certain forms of professional knowledge, medicine's a very interesting one, particularly the time at which they're developing computer programs and AI to do diagnosis. And, you know, maybe these things will turn out to be better than doctors. But it will depend on the condition. Well, what's quite interesting is that a lot of really good doctors, they kind of have a sense when something isn't quite right. They have a kind of sense where something needs further investigation. It's not in, they're not infallible, don't get me wrong, but they can't always fully put their finger on it. And, and it, that's insight. And we don't think that to be uh, deeply mysterious in the sense of it requires mumbo jumbo or some kind of you know, insight from the gods or something. We do just accept the fact that with experience comes a kind of sensitivity to things which can't always be articulated in the form of you know, rational arguments or even objective reasons. I think the real test is to ask ourselves, well, in which, which kind of domains do we think insight should be you know, allowed and tolerated? In which kind of domains isn't it? 
I don't think, for example, if someone turns around and says, you know, I just have a very strong feeling this vaccine is the one that's going to work for COVID. We should pay any attention to it at all. No, who <laughs> you're mentioning? I, have, I don't know who you're thinking about. I have. I, if you could see my hand gestures, and and, and <laughs> now you know, you know, I have great insight into this. It doesn't work for things like that, but for some things, for some things, it really kind of does. Um, and that's where the other thing is that insight isn't always in complete opposition to the other the other things. So I think, for example, in the Western tradition, there's such an emphasis now on the importance of reason and argument we don't really notice that actually some of the most important pieces of philosophy and history of the West have essentially been moments of insight. Descartes famously is reported to say, people think they know, I think, therefore I am, which is a formulation he does use in the discourse on method. In, in the meditations, it's not an argument, it's just the one thing that cannot be doubted is that I am, I exist. Now, if you think about that, there's not really an argument there. He's had a, a moment of insight and you see whether it's true or not by attending very carefully to it and thinking, mm, mm, that's right, that's right. It's not an argument. <laughs> so some insights, you know, it's not like insights can't be explained at all. They can't be demonstrated. But sometimes with these insights, it's more a matter of showing rather than telling. You know, you kind of share your insight with someone. And if they are thinking sufficiently well and the insight is genuine, other people go, ah, oh, I see that too. But there are some kind of insights which you can't expect someone untrained to have. So if the doctor has the insight that, for example, can't be properly explained, then you can't expect him just to sort of show this case to a patient or a person on the street and they would go, oh, I see what you mean. So some forms of insight are kind of shareable in, in, and others aren't. But that's a lovely way of reminding us that the tools that we bring to knowledge creation and knowledge verification in the West are also limited and we've got lots to learn from elsewhere. Okay, so that's one of the four key ways in which we see the world uh, differently, or, or perhaps two, because we've spoken about our fundamental yeah. me metaphysics, we've spoken about how we, how we know things to be mm -hmm. true. A third is how we identify ourselves, who we understand ourselves to be in the world. Yeah, I mean, this has been a very long-running interest for me. It's been a journey, to use a cliche, because my undergraduate dissertation and then also my uh, PhD thesis was on the question of personal identity. And I approached that very narrowly. I was basically, there's a philosopher called Derek Parfit who's written the most important work on this in the last hundred years, probably. And yeah, a PhD is like you know, footnotes to Parfit. That's what it was, really. Um, <laughs> after that, though, I kind of, I then many years later wrote a book called The Ego Trick, which was trying to, I think it's such an exciting topic. I wanted to make it interesting to other people. And I, I broadened my horizons there. I didn't just bring in analytic philosophy. I brought in a lot of experience of people talking. And this book was wonderful for me because I, I got to expand that even more and look about, at, I had some idea that there were different ways of thinking across the world, but these were kind of mentioned in passing and briefly in my own book and a bit glossed over. Now, what I find interesting about this is that very evidently it's a truism that people are people wherever they may come from. And we're all human beings. We are, we are the world. We are the people, as that cheesy song went. So how can it be that there are fundamentally different ways of understanding the self? Well, here, I have to say there's one, I always end up recommending this book, Intimacy or Integrity by Tom Kasulis. Thomas Kasulis, he's a really, really interesting comparative philosopher who works on Japanese thought. And he makes this point that the mistake people make, not just in this topic, but in almost always in looking at different ways of thinking around the world, is that people are always keen to create these dichotomies. So the West is materialistic, 
India is spiritual. Uh, the West is individualistic. Asia is collectivist. Whatever it might be. So they make these sharp distinctions. And he's saying it's never really like that. It almost invariably, if not, if not absolutely invariably. We, in a, there is a sense in which we all look at things in the same way around the world. But what we put in the foreground and what we put in the background varies incredibly, enormously. Now, when it comes to the self, there's a question about whether or not we have an immaterial soul or not, which I think is essentially one that depends on religious traditions. But apart from that, the, the, two, the two ways of thinking, which are in different but at the same time complementary, are on the one hand, the one that's developed most in the West, which is what we might call the atomistic view. So on this view, an individual is an individual unit first and foremost. So you are your, your immaterial soul, whatever it might be, the Cartesian ego, the I. And, you know, society is a collection of these things. And the primacy of the individual as, as a unit leads to all sorts of interesting problems and questions because one of the longest running questions in sort of modern English-speaking philosophy is what they call the problem of other minds, which is, how can I know that someone else has a mind? And the, the reason that problem emerges at all is because we take it for granted that what I am is primarily this subjective unit of consciousness separated from others. And therefore the problem then arises, well, if that's the case, how can I really know other people have minds at all? How come could they not just be robots? The other way of looking at the self is generally given the term of the relational aspect of the self. And the idea here is that who you are is never entirely a matter of who you are in exclusion to everything else. Your relations to others are constitutive of who you are. The fact that you are someone's son, brother, daughter, fellow citizen, whatever it might be, these relationships constitute who we are. And, and that's really important because that kind of shows that in a way it doesn't even make sense to think of the self in complete isolation from others. A self could not emerge in isolation. And this relationality can extend not just to other people, but to the natural world. So I think you find in a lot of the oral traditions of Africa, for example, a sense that our relationality is not just to other people, it's to, to the ancestors. And that's, that's not necessarily in any kind of sort of spooky way. It's just that, you know, we are a product of the traditions we emerged in, but also like to the land. The land is often a very, very important factor in these uh, oral traditions. So we have these two ways of thinking. Now, of course, when you think about it, it's quite obvious that we do have both of those things in the West. Uh, we have the idea of the atomized individual, and yet we also have that famous John Donne line, no man is an island entire unto itself. We understand that the, the human being is a social animal, as Aristotle said, but particularly over the centuries, and particularly more recently, the individual aspect has been foregrounded. In other parts of the world, I think pretty much everywhere else, apart from the West, to be honest, and even in the West in the past, the relational aspect has always been hugely important. This is really interesting because it suggests how we don't choose which of these views is right. We choose how much emphasis to put on them. And I think that given so many people are worried that in the West we have become too atomized, too individualized, and yet people don't want to give up ideas of liberty and autonomy that come along with that. The solution is not to just throw that out of the window, it's to say, maybe we just need to put a bit more emphasis on the relational aspect too, to bring these two ways of understanding into a better balance. So there's a couple of things I'd like to pull out of this, Julian. The first is that 
clearly the ways in which we think have an impact on the ways in which we live. And I think you've spoken and written elsewhere about how this atomistic understanding of, of the individual um, has also had an impact on the kind of social policies that have been played out. Margaret Thatcher famously saying there is no such thing as society, perhaps an acceleration of that atomistic view of the individual. But it's having a, um, a not terribly positive impact on the ways in which we build out our societies. Do you think that's fair? Well, I think I think I think that it is true. I think it is fair. I think they 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 do have a, a difference. And I think both of you have their strengths and weaknesses. That's the other important point. So, I think a lot of the time people misunderstand the relational understanding of self because they think it implies a kind of collectivism and a kind of uniformity and a sort of a denial of individuality. Now, that's not true. But it is true that in societies where that relational aspect is most dominant, those things are greater risks. Yeah, Because uh, if you do have more emphasis on how we relate to each other and so forth, there is more risk that's going to be pushed in the direction of conformity and uniformity and so forth. At the same time, the individualistic, atomistic thing has great strengths. I mean, the whole emphasis on individual autonomy, liberty. To, I mean, these are things which if you've grown up in those cultures as I have, you really don't want to give those things up at all. But again, it does have its risks. And the risks it has are, again, of just uh, separating people from each other too much. People sort of forgetting and denying how much they depend upon other people, essentially, and how much a harmonious society really requires that we find ways to, to live together. And so, yeah, and, 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 and I think what happens is that people will, I mean, in politically, what always happens, I think, is that people will tap into the dominant ideas to try and push certain agendas. And they can do that for ill or they can do it for good. So in the West, for example, if you're a top politician who's trying to be successful, you're going to be in favour of liberty and freedom, of course. But sometimes in the name of liberty and freedom, people promote things which are really uh, not so desirable after all. They might actually be promoting just uh, letting the reins of corporate interests basically take advantage of everybody under the name of liberty and freedom. In the same kind of way, under the name of like we're all in it together, there are societies in, in, in other parts of the world which essentially stamp down on dissent and demand obedience. So the Chinese Communist Party, I think, is, is very good at this. You know, the Chinese Communist Party uses kind of Confucian language and rhetoric but not really authentically, but it's a, it's a rhetorical ploy. They're appealing to what people intuitively find appealing, but they're twisting it just to fit their own agenda. So here you've got a beautiful sort of two-part description of the way in which we think having an impact on the ways in which we live. But I also want to surface something else, which is I remember years ago reading about the man who discovered contagion who was a, a Muslim doctor called Al-Razi, I, th I think in the 13th century. And I remember reading at the time that it was perfectly obvious that the idea of contagion was not going to come out of the West because the West's intellectual culture had at the very heart of it the idea of the individual's relationship to God as an individual, whereas somewhere like the Middle East, and you talk about um, Islam's sense of community, but that one of, the, one of the kind of grounding principles of Islam is the idea of the ummah, the community of believers, which makes that jump to discovering contagion so much easier, so much faster. So actually the ways in which we think have an impact on the things that, with, that we can also see. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. It's very interesting that there was this great flourishing in the so-called Islamic golden age in which 
the Islamic world was way ahead of, of the West on, in, in things like mathematics, geometry, astronomy, and so forth. I, I think you, in the West, what's quite interesting is that in, for, for most, for in more recent history, it's been the, the West that's been at the forefront of science and the development of science. And why was that? I mean, there were lots of reasons, but it's not just wealth. I mean, China was more affluent than the West for many centuries, and yet it didn't make, it made technological breakthroughs, but not those kind of fundamental scientific ones. What was it about the West which made a difference? Now, I really wouldn't want to come out here and sort of give you, this is the truth, but I'm sure that one factor was this kind of atomistic way of thinking, because natural science, the great progress in natural science, it worked because the fundamental process was to break things down to their smallest constitutive elements and then to work out how they work from there. And that was enormously successful in the sciences for centuries. And, it was, and, and the West went ahead of it. So I don't think it's a coincidence that the West, which had this kind of atomized sort of worldview, was where that kind of science most developed. But we can rest on our laurels. I think there's too much of a kind of a thing of, oh, well, of course, Western civilization is superior, isn't it? Just look at what it's achieved. If you look at where the real exciting growth areas in natural science are now, they're often actually to do with things concerning systems. And I do think that, I do wonder, and I'm, I'm quite convinced by this, that we've reached, we've almost gone as far as we can go in understanding the world by chopping it up into the smallest elements and building out from that. What we're discovering is that when systems behave in ways which can't be predicted by just looking at those small parts, systems, biology, complexity theory, and so forth, they all, they all show this to be the case. And here, the most conducive ways of thinking are those ones which are about the more pattern thinking, the interrelated theory, which again, is interesting about what you say about contagion, because of course, the idea of contagion is one which emerges more naturally. If your fundamental way of looking at things is, is as interconnected rather than as discrete units. Precisely. I'm, I'm, I'm struck by something you hear very often in the field of natural language process, processing, which is that actually Mandarin is a far more easy and far more pliable language to natural language processing than uh, Latin languages as a perhaps a metaphor for what you were describing, this shift towards systems thinking. Can I ask you just before we move on, because I love the idea, for you to explain a little bit the difference between what you or what, what your uh, colleague describes as intimacy versus integrity in the ways in which society arranges itself. Yeah, those are the terms Tom Kasulis used to sort of talk about this fundamental orientation. I thought about sort of atomized and relational, but really, I guess that's the way it manifests itself, particularly in the, in the arena of personal identity. His intimacy and integrity thing was integrity is about, uh, actually, I, think he's, I don't think these terms are the best chosen words, to be honest, because they need explaining. But the idea of integrity is about wholeness, it's about completeness. So it's the idea that each thing is in and of itself complete and entire. So if you visualize this, the, the way of looking at the world looks like uh, you know, lo lots of little circles, lots of little atoms all built up together. Intimacy is about things being connected, deeply connected, fundamentally connected and inseparable. And that's, again, leads to this idea of looking at the patterns, the holes, the interrelations between things. So rather than visualizing the world as a whole load of different little circles in connection with each other, it's like overlapping circles, but not just overlapping circles, overlapping circles which don't even have clearly defined boundaries because everything is so enmeshed in each other. And he says that time and again, if you, if you look at that, you can see how there are the, the, the intimacy orientations and there are the integrity orientations in thinking. 
And again, and what's, what's really critical here is that there are times when one both ways of thinking do have their role, they do have their legitimacy. There are times when one way of thinking is more fruitful, there are times when another is more fruitful. And the, main, the mistake is simply to sort of ignore the resources of one and focus solely on the other. Julian, the fourth approach or the fourth area in which you see deep, deep metaphysical differences in our, in our approaches around the world is how we understand the good life or how to live. Can you help us understand what you mean there? Yeah, I mean, this is both the domains of ethics and politics. I mean, I think these things are inseparable, actually. It's quite interesting that they're taught as separate courses in, in certainly Western universities, but they are really together. How, how ought we to live? And that comes last because actually I think a lot of how we think about how we ought to live really rest, rests upon our idea of what the fundamental nature of the world is and what the nature of human beings is, you know. Uh, how we live really follows from that. So, for example, in, again, in lots of the Indian schools, the Orthodox Indian schools, um, how we ought to live is rooted in the idea that our ultimate destiny is returned to the, to the ultimate, the, the, the Brahman, the ultimate reality. And that, that affects the way we view the whole purpose of life. And I think this is, a, again, a very interesting topic because once again we see what Kasulis says, which is that often, sometimes you find an idea which is perhaps completely different. So if you don't believe in Brahman as the ultimate destiny, then there are certain things in the Indian tradition which are simply not going to resonate. On the other hand, often you see things where you go, well, yes, I can see that what's going on there is a greater emphasis. And I think the clearest example of this is the idea of harmony, which is this fundamental Confucian value and also a Taoist value, although I think it has a slightly different character in Taoism. So this is a value for politics and for ethics. It's saying that really the most important thing in life is for there to be harmony, harmony in society, harmony in our families, harmony in the relations between us. Harmony isn't simply about, it's not about not rocking the boat, keeping your place, although of course it can lead in that direction and Confucianism has been very hierarchical. Harmony requires difference. It requires that people have different roles. So even when it's hierarchical, it's the very fact that the role of the father and the mother and the son and the elder son and the daughter, all these, we all have different roles and therefore there's a diversity is, exact, is what's required for harmony. If everyone tries to, to be the same, you don't, you don't get harmony. And this idea is so important. It's again, abused by the Chinese Communist Party because harmony, all the classical, Chinese texts say very clearly harmony requires difference it requires difference it doesn't tolerate it it demands it whereas actually in the name of harmonization the Chinese Communist Party today is often bringing around about a much greater uniformity uh, Hong Kong actually is a very interesting example of this Hong Kong when it came back under Chinese sovereignty the principle was one country two systems in other words Hong Kong was part of China but there were two systems and actually, I, I, I'm struck by how classically Confucian that way of thinking is. It's about managing difference. It's about acknowledging the fact that there is difference between Hong Kong and the mainland. But the way to achieve a harmony is somehow to get this balance where you can have one country and two systems. But of course, now 
Chinese Communist Party is just abandoning that. It wants one country, one system, but it does so under the name of harmonization. If we look in our own culture, harmony is not a concept which I find is not taught in, in politics, is not taught in ethics. If you think about it for like five seconds though, you can recognize, well, of course, of course we want a harmonious society. Of course we want harmonious relationships between people. So why isn't that not in our political theory and ethical lexicon? Because it's just not part of the tradition. So I think this is something where, you know, we can, we can learn from each other. We can learn about this. I think there's a place to kind of promote harmony as one of the key objectives of politics. Because after all, we know politics is about managing different competing claims and interests. It's only because society consists of a wide variety of people whose interests and beliefs are not all the same that we need politics. Well, if that's the case, then rather than simply see it being about a democratic process of majority decides, which is actually deeply antagonistic in the end and leads to great polarization as we're seeing, why not? Why can't we learn a bit from this and say, actually, you know, the role here is to try and bring some harmony here, is to negotiate those differences in a way that those differences can exist, but not being in tension, not being in conflict in what we call harmony you say in your book that harmony is what is sort of the great surprise for the west because it's probably much more universal as a principle than anything else anywhere um including our idea of virtue do you think is virtue is is, is virtue what the west brings in lieu of harmony as an idea well, I don't know about that, because I think that the idea of virtue, in it's certainly the, the Greek sense, has somewhat been lost, actually. Um, it, it's very interesting that, you know, when I was starting out as an undergraduate, the dominant moral theories were utilitarianism of, of some kind or other, or more broadly speaking, consequentialism. So on this view, what is good and what is right is whatever brings about the best consequences. So most famously, the utilitarianism, which talks about the greatest happiness of the greatest number. And this is just about, you know, you do what makes things best. It's as simple as that. It's a very kind of practical view. And the main view on the other side would have been what are called deontological theories, horribly technical word, but it's basically a kind of ethic of duty and responsibility. And so the, and I think this has resonances with the Christian tradition as well. You have a duty to obey the moral law, that the maxims which should apply to everyone and to be consistent would have to apply to everyone. Don't lie, don't steal, et cetera, et cetera. Virtue didn't really play a big role. Virtue was beginning to come back though. And virtue in the Aristotelian sense, it's not about the Christian virtues of, you know, just sort of like a list of good things to have. It's the idea that really, being good starts with becoming a good person. That's how you get goodness. A good, and I think this is, makes intuitive sense. Think of the people you know who you think are most morally admirable. These people, I would suggest, are not normally ones who have a very clear kind of set of complicated and comprehensive moral theory or set of principles they follow. They rather just tend to be people who are compassionate, kind, thoughtful, perhaps you know, wise in how they behave, generous. You, you, you're describing their character traits, the things about them which they have developed and enabled them to make good decisions and act as good people. That's what the virtue uh, tradition brings. 
and it got rather lost in the West. But it, again, that seems to have resonances all around the world. The similarities between Confucian and Aristotelian thinking are very, very striking in this regard. I mean, both really thought that the cultivation of character was the most important thing. Get that right and everything else follows. Whereas in the West, I think we've moved towards the idea of what are the principles, what are the rules that we need to follow, and, and, and have neglected the whole issue of character. You frame this nicely by saying that in the West, we try and follow the golden rule, do unto others what you would want done to you, or negatively, do not do unto others that which you do not want done to you. Whereas elsewhere, the idea is that rather than just following the rule, you might become the kind of person who would naturally perform, who would naturally behave that way. And there's a very big gap between those two modes of yeah. approach. Yeah, I think that's true, because the, you get versions of the, of the golden rule in, in multiple traditions. Very strikingly, again, Confucius had his version of it. There's the Christian version of it. Kant's categorical imperative is arguably a version of the, of the golden rule. Um, act, I mean, to translate roughly, act only on that principle which you could will to be a universal principle. Um, so you have the golden rule in Confucius, but I say I think that, that is the critical difference. In Confucius, the idea is that if you work on yourself, this is what a good person will do. So in a way, it's not so much a good person is someone who always has this rule in the front of their head and tries to follow it. A good person is a kind of person whose actions you will find will follow this rule. Of course, it's good to have a conscious awareness of it, because when there are difficult decisions, it might help you to decide uh, which one to, which decision to make. But fundamentally, it comes from being of good character. And I think there's another good thing. Again, there was a, a Zen master who put it really nicely. The thing about rules and principles is that rules and principles are absolutely useless if you don't initially have the right character. You know, the, the right rules and principles do not stop a thief from thieving, right? And a good person doesn't need a rule or principle to tell them not to steal or not to murder. They just don't do it. So there's this sort of curious kind of thing that, um, you know, rules and principles by themselves just don't bring about good and right action. It's people being good is what brings around the right moral action. You've talked beautifully just now about harmony with diversity the, the importance of diversity inside harmony you flag the problems that we are, that we see across the west with polarization ever increasing sort of radicalization of all sides on the political spectrum and you have this lovely line and perhaps the the reason for your book which was um i'm quoting you by gaining greater knowledge of how others think we can become less certain of the knowledge we think we have which is always the first step to greater understanding. So at the very heart of this project is a conviction that by seeing the gaps in our own thought, we open them up and allow for growth. We allow, for, we allow ourselves to learn more. Where are we now? We live in an ultra-globalized world. The internet speeds everything up across, across all cultures. Are we becoming more uniform? Is thought globalizing? And if it's not, what, what are the 21st century models going to look like? Is it going to be a mashup of Communist Party Confucianism and um, American pragmatic individualism? What's the 21st century metaphysics going to look like? I, I, I really not a futurologist. I wouldn't like to guess. My, my, my hunch is that despite the fact that we talk about a globalized world, that these deep differences in culture are probably going to be more enduring 
than, than people might suppose. We do see globalising effects kind of having, bringing things closer together, but they don't completely go. So, for, so you see in, in the way people behave in public transport, for example, you know, Japan, if superficially in some ways, is highly, in inverted commas, westernised. It has all the sort of technology, et cetera, et cetera. But the way people behave on public transport is very much about being hyper-aware of the, the relationality, giving other people their space. Even when there is no space, even when it's crammed, you give space to others, you find a way to doing that. The New York subway is characterised by people trying to claim their seats, get their double seats, <laughs> spreading out their belongings, claiming their own space for themselves, because it's a hyper-individualised culture. So I'm really not so sure that things are going to become entirely uniform. But hopefully, if there is, if there is a fruitful kind of learning from each other, then we should expect some of the bigger differences to become less. It would be more about cultures toning down their excesses rather than all becoming the same. So, you know, maybe a bit more individualism would be a good thing in places like China and Japan but not at the price of eroding the real strengths of the relationality. And again, and maybe a greater strength, uh, emphasis on relationality in the West would be a good thing, but that doesn't mean we have to sort of give up entirely our ideals about autonomy and individuality. So I think this is perhaps the hope of where things will go. Whether it will go or not, I don't know, because there are so many threats. We've seen the rise of nationalism in particular, and we could easily see a situation in which people fearful of globalization sort of like double down on their differences and kind of instead of like thinking what can we take from cultures that are different from others we'll end up saying what can we find which is most distinctive of our own tradition and assert to the exclusion of all else and there are worrying signs of that of course i think in terms of the west attitude you know i'm of the west so this is the most interest to me I think that, you know, thinking about how people think around the world is obviously important for understanding them. But for me, perhaps the the most useful thing is it holds a mirror up to our own society in which we can notice, you know, things about ourselves that we didn't notice because we took them so much for granted. And I do worry a bit that we've stopped doing that by so many things. Sometimes it's because of a sense of superiority that we really do have nothing to learn. Sometimes it's the opposite. It's kind of this strange exoticization in which, you know, the West is blamed for everything that's wrong in the world. And people romanticize cultures in which people are more in harmony with nature, whatever it might be. But, you know, if you do that, you're really making it impossible to learn because you're really kind of like acting as though there's such a it's night and day, the West and not the West. If that's the case, how can the rest really learn? We're not going to become like China or India, whatever it might be. So I, I do think there's not enough of this feeling. But that's why I think the metaphor foreground and background from Tom Kasulis is so important. And I kind of build on that in a way and have this idea of a mixing desk. You know, a mixing desk in a recording studio is where you record each instrument. And what you do is you have to turn up and down the levels, the, the volume levels of each instrument so you get the best mix overall and i think in a sense all around the world we've all got the same mixing desk we, we have these things and they're labeled things like individualism relationality rights harmony so forth but we all set these things at different levels 
And I think by looking at other cultures, you can go, ah, oh, I'm actually thinking about it, seeing how, how many players, maybe we could up our harmony a bit here. Maybe we could turn down our individualism a bit here. And that kind of learning from each other and, and tuning would be good. And it's also, if you think about it, it's also a very fairly modest aspiration. You know, so many clarion calls for change are calling for a radical transformation of a kind that's probably unrealistic. It's not unrealistic to tweak things here and there, a bit more of this, a bit less of that. So maybe we can learn uh, from each other in ways that are fruitful. Julian, what a wonderful place to, to halt. Um, I can't thank you enough for walking us through these ideas. It's been a huge pleasure and extremely instructive and also quite optimistic. So thank you. Thank you, Turi. That was the Palia podcast. Check out our show notes if you'd like to dig deeper into this episode's themes and join me at palia.com to explore all the world's opinions. To stay up to date with new episodes or get further insights from our guests, subscribe to the Palia podcast wherever you listen and follow us on social media at Ask Palia. All our links are in the show notes. And thank you for listening.